Well, good morning, Faith family. My name is Josh. It's a privilege to be with you, and uh, we are in 2 Kings. So that is page 307 in your pew Bible. Please get that out. Use that, and it'll be an encouragement to you to follow along and to read this exciting story. Uh, it's fitting to say it's a privilege to be with you for uh, these 13 years of uh, being able to be one of your pastors here. Because it's passages like this that lets you know as a pastor that you're not guaranteed another Sunday. Uh, it's passages like this that lets you know that really, it really is a privilege to be with you. We don't know how many more of these we'll have left. Uh, it's just the, the fleeting nature of being here. And so it is our job as pastors to always prepare the church for the next guy. And uh, one of the ways that you look for someone in the future that would be better than I would be that he would remember things like dismissing children ages three years old through fifth grade for junior church. The sign has been up there for weeks, and that was helpful. Was it there? I did not see it. I can't read. That, that's surprising. Left to right, top to bottom, turn the page. I figured that out a little while ago. Uh, but yeah, so there's the children dismissed to junior church, Bible Explorers. Thanks for that. But we're wrapping up the life of Elijah, and it has been a fun 11 weeks. Elijah has become my friend, has become yours, uh, someone you look up to, someone that you admire, and it is sad to see him kind of go here, and we're going to see that even in Elisha's response. But as the mantle gets passed down to him, how do we respond? How do we take the baton and keep running? Well, I'm so thankful for what we've learned from him. He gives us lessons on a couple of things. If you've missed the entire sermon series, let me just see if I can kind of backtrack 11 weeks for you in a nutshell. How can we summarize Elijah's life? How can we summarize his life in ministry? How can we boil it down to one thing? I would say that Elisha has been consumed with one passion, that the people of God would worship the one true God. That was his passion. You can even hear it in his name. His name, Elijah, just means, my God is Yahweh. Yahweh is my God, right? And we know that he is someone who was jealous for Yahweh. It wasn't just an intellectual idea. Okay, I got the name. My parents gave it to me. Yes, I believe there's only one true God. I'm an Israelite. We know Deuteronomy 6, right? The Lord your God is one. I passed the theology exam. No, he was jealous for it. Remember when he was uh, praying uh, on Mount Carmel uh, and he is discouraged a little bit uh, because of uh, Jezebel and her threat. And he says, Lord, I've been jealous for your name. Your people have forsaken you, but I've been jealous. And then while he's on Mount Carmel, uh, he goes up there and he confronts the nation of Israel with how long will you go limping between two opinions? Limping because as you try to live two different ways, you don't really ever put all of your effort into one direction. So you kind of limp along, you hobble, because you're not sure which path you want to take. So Elijah has been someone who's been jealous for the Lord. He, he believes in that. It's in his name. He pleads for it. Uh, but we also see that he is a man who wants to see this continue. And so he wants to pass the baton off. And most likely, we already know earlier from 1 Kings 19, that it's going to be Elisha who's going to take the mantle. And so as we come to 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, we see this metaphor of a relay race. And the baton is in Elijah's hand. Uh, he is rounding the, term, uh, the, the turn. All of his teammates are there at the end, kind of cheering him on. And as he looks at all of his teammates, you know what? They're younger than he is. But if you ever have passed the baton, you know that they're not going to stay young for long, right? I mean, they're, they're going to grow up. 
And it's his responsibility to get the baton into their hands. It's his privilege to do that. It's his time to do that. And we're reminded this morning that no matter how talented somebody is, uh, no matter how trustworthy a leader is, or even just how treasured a leader is, you know what? Their job is to get the baton to the next generation. It's going to change hands one day. You think about your favorite leader. Maybe it's somebody in your family that to see your dad pass away and that you took on the mantle. You go, man, I just wish I was half the man my dad was. You, you feel this. If you're in ministry and there's been a gap, someone's passed away, I think back to the days of Joni Terry and her kind of sudden passing away, and we're just like, whoa, those are some huge shoes to fill. What she did in hospitality and caring and taking care of our, our food and serving people, she was just there all the time, you know, doing that. And I believe God let her do that in her singleness, not necessarily what she wanted, but she was sold out using that gift of singleness for the Lord. And so as you think about the baton being passed, we see here that a race and a relay race is only successful if the baton is actually passed to the next runner. So I'm just going to share with you uh, two quick points this morning of how uh, this message in 2 Kings 2, 1 through 18, is like a relay race. And uh, let's go ahead and read God's word first, and then we'll look uh, and see what we can learn from it for our lives. Beginning in verse 1. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah... Up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now some of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he, Elisha, said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. I don't know why he said that. Was he, was he discouraged? Was it too sad? You don't want to think about it? We're not sure. But Elijah said to him, Hey, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. The second time, as the Lord lives and as you yourselves live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophet who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered again, yes, I know it. And keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said to him a third time, as the Lord lives and as yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak, he rolled it up, struck the water, and the water was parted to one side to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. You see, he knows he has to pass the baton. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on ahead, they talked. And behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back 
and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he stood, then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elijah went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. And they sent therefore fifty men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Okay. I mean, that is a story. Where do we begin? Uh, what's the point? There are so many intriguing things there. We are just tempted to go all over the place. We're going to try to stick to, I guess, this theme of passing the baton and that Elijah is going to pass that to Elisha. So here's the first point. It's real profound. A relay race involves more than one person. This is not a solo race. Elijah, maybe up until this point, has been more of a solo prophet. He has kind of scaled mountains on his own, climbing, ascending, uh, confronting king after king after king. He was there with the widow uh, by himself, and we see that he's always kind of alone. But eventually, we see that God is always calling men, calling people, plural. And God calls different people in different ways. And he calls different kinds of people, right? It's not that he just calls everyone the exact same way. And it's not that he only calls one type of person. It is interesting to see just in this passage how different these men are and how they will be as their life unfolds. And yet they are still both called by God and they're used by him. So friends, this morning, no matter where you are, who you are, what skills you have, God is always calling people to himself. And he can use any of us for his glory. It's actually God's tried and true way of reviving a work that's dead or keeping a work going that's healthy, and that is by calling people to himself. So notice, first of all, the uniqueness of how God prepares one, Elisha, through personal discipleship. God prepares Elisha through personal discipleship. Back in 1 Kings 19, Elisha was called by Elijah. And he had a choice that he had to make. He had to count the cost. It seemed like he was from a rich family. And so he goes and he sacrifices his oxen. And he sacrifices them and creates a, a burnt offering by burning up the yoke that he would use. So all of his farm equipment, all of the tools of his trade, he kind of cashes in, so to speak, so, so that he can be all in with Elijah. Well, at the end of the story in 1 Kings 19, verse 21, we're told that he ran after Elijah and assisted him, or ministered to him. I mean, can you imagine, as far as I can tell, it was 17 years that Elisha is under Elijah, assisting him. Not a real glamorous task. Can you imagine trying to take care of this hairy man, Elijah, bringing him his bowl of water to shave? I mean, what is it that he had to do? Wash his hands? Some of those things. Very menial tasks. But yet, it's amazing how God sees fit to grow a man using slow and steady processes. Just being with Elijah, just assisting him 
was part of what it did to create this personal discipleship with Elisha. We can pick that same theme up in the New Testament. Do you know that Christ, when he calls the twelve, listen to Mark 3.14, Christ appointed the twelve so that they might be with him, and so that he might send them out to preach. That they just might be with them. Remember when I was first getting challenged about discipleship and personal discipleship, basically just include people in whatever you do. Just have them be with you. They're going to see how you respond to traffic and somebody cutting you off. They're going to see how you have to wait in a long line. And you, through all of that, your day in and day out life, you are actually discipling somebody. Now, most naturally, that happens in the home, right? You look at your kids, you're like, wow, I just looked in the mirror. And, and I wonder where they got that. And it's because they just kind of caught who you are just by being with you. Well, God prepares Elijah through that personal discipleship of just time together, 17 years. But there's a different group of people here that God prepares and God calls. And those are these sons of prophets. Sometimes God prepares people through intentional equipping. Look with me as we see that Elijah takes kind of a, uh, a reminiscent journey down memory lane. And he stops by two seminaries, okay, a school in Bethel. In a school in Jericho. And if you're not familiar with Jericho, let me just remind you quickly on how bizarre it would be to have a seminary, to have a Bible school in Jericho. Do you ever think that it would make it if there was a Word of Life Las Vegas? A Liberty University campus Las Vegas? Las Vegas Bible Institute. Is that where you would think that there would be this great place to send young people to get trained for the Lord? Don't think so, right? Well, Jericho is known as the Las Vegas of the Old Testament. Uh, your famous people that you know there would be Rahab. We'll just let you fill that in. Okay, if you don't know, just read kind of Joshua 5, Joshua 6, right around there. And, and you'll hear that story of who Rahab is. And so there's now, though, a school there. And God says, I'm going to call people. I'm going to equip people. And he has it in Bethel, verse 3 and verse 5 in Jericho. And each city had a band of prophets, this cadre of prophets, and they're called the sons of the prophets. And they are in training. God is raising up an army of the Lord. Now these guys are not going to be Elijah or Elisha. And that's good for us. Many of us are going to minister in places, in our homes and in our workplaces, not on the national scene. Many pastors are just ordinary pastors that faithfully try to share God's word, live their life with their sheep, but don't write books. Don't get asked to, you know, uh, be a talking head on a TV show. Uh, we just, again, God calls people, and the way it gets passed down is through the ordinary means of sometimes intentional equipping, like these sons of the prophets were, both in Bethel and Jericho. And so he passes the baton on to them, and as he's about ready to head out, Remember, we learned that in verse 1, the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven. And as he knows that he only has so many days left, what is on his bucket list? The golf course, the ski slopes, the retirement community on the top of Mount Carmel. No. You know, what is on his mind, even though that he knows that he is going to be exiting this life, is how can I pass the baton? How can I strengthen other brothers? And so he goes, and at the end of his life, he still smells like sheep, not like a golf course. And so Elijah here goes around and spends time with them, developing them, sharing with them, checking in on them. And so he prepares those through intentional equipping. But ultimately, God prepares his church, not just Elisha, 
not just these guys that go to seminary, but God actually equips the whole church through a prophet's ministry. It's implied in the title that Elisha gives Elijah. Look with me at verse 12. <clears throat> and Elisha said it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Now when we, swing, when we sing, swing low, sweet chariot, we think that Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot. But was he? No, he was taken up in a whirlwind. This is not a scene. This is a title. And so Elisha is calling Elijah. I know it's hard to follow with my enunciation. But he's calling him, you're the chariot of Israel. You are the horsemen. What does that mean? He's looking at Elijah and he's saying, you are the arsenal of God. You have been sent by God to protect the people. Elijah is a one-man army. He's a spiritual Rambo, if you will, right? And uh, he has been holding back the tidal wave of idolatry, kind of single-handedly. At one time, Elijah actually thought, I'm the only one left. Well, he is the chariot of Israel, and he is its horseman. He's the protector of Israel. And how did he protect Israel? By giving Israel God's word. What is the true strength of a nation? God's word. Hearing God's word, following God's word, that is where the health is at. And so for all of these years, Elijah has been the very arsenal, the F-16, the tank, if you would, modern day equivalent, the, if we're going to paint the picture, a flaming tank, okay? That's what he is, and he is bringing God's word to bear on these people, and it serves to protect them. It serves to provide for them because they get to know what God's plan is, and ultimately they're supposed to follow it. So if you want God's blessing and God's protection, the goal is to hear the word of the Lord. And so from a prophet, the whole nation can be blessed because he confronts wicked kings and he asks the nation to turn to him. And he stood in that breach and he stood absolutely firm. And on him rise and fell the hope of Israel. That's what we have going on in this passage. And I hope that you can maybe perhaps remember a seemingly important transition perhaps in your life to kind of just walk in their shoes for a second. This passage is trying to present to you a problem. They're trying to get you to feel a little bit the devastation of what it would be like to lose a man like Elijah. Track with me. If God's, if God's word is meant to give life, right? God's word is meant to give life to a whole nation. And God's word has been coming primarily through one man, the prophet Elijah. And we're told this one man is, is momentarily going to be taken up into heaven. How will Israel hear from God? I think the question we've been asking the whole service, how will we know that the Lord is among us? How do we know that the Lord is here? And so the nation of Israel, as they see Elijah go up, the very chariot of Israel, the horsemen of Israel, the F-16 of God's army, and he leaves, now they're going to say, well, who? Who's going to stand in his gap? Who's going to protect us? Who's going to provide for us? How will we hear from God? I think we feel that ourselves. Maybe there's been a man in your life that has changed your world, and then God removes that person from your world, and you wonder, well, is hope gone with them too? 
It must be a result, <clears throat> excuse me, of just our human nature to think that God's work only goes forward by human effort. Aren't we just prone to trust that? The reason why FCBC is healthy, it must be because of all of your human effort and your ties and your energy. And it must be because we've got the right combination of Pastor Pat and Pastor Josh. Is that it? I think we're tempted to think that, especially if you get used to hearing from one guy for a long time. The nation of Israel has heard from Elijah for 17 years. They've gotten comfortable knowing who he is. Now that he's gone, what's going to happen? I think we do the same thing. Just imagine there's a national pastor. I don't get asked that, this question, but I think national pastors do. Think of the John Pipers. Think of the John MacArthur's. Now, John Piper has kind of already retired, right, from Bethlehem Baptist Church, I think, in Minnesota. But John MacArthur is still preaching out in Los Angeles at Grace Community Church. And if you're on staff there, I would bet money that every time there is a conference and pastors come there, you know what the number one question pastors have is? Um, have you noticed John, no, John MacArthur, Dr. MacArthur, Pastor MacArthur? He, he's looking a little older. What, what's going to happen when he dies? And as a staff, you're like, you're expect that because you're on staff, that maybe they're like, there's like this inner ring and you have this secret, you know, sauce and secret code to make John MacArthur not die. And so they ask you, what's going to happen when he's gone? Or perhaps somebody might feel, what's going to happen when Billy Graham passed away? How are we going to fill stadiums to give gospel messages any longer? Who's going to fill his place? And we just kind of have that hope, right, that it's in this person, not in God's work. Maybe we need a celebrity that would become a Christian that could share God's news, like Kanye West. I mean, whatever it might be, right? I mean, but that's kind of how we hope. If there's a superstar that can share God's word as a Christian, then certainly people will listen. But God is trying to say to us over and over in this passage, I am not limited to a certain era or to a certain individual. You know, the older we get, the more we look back and say, oh, remember those years. Maybe it was the 1950s when everybody was a Christian and it was a Christian nation more soon. Maybe it was the 1980s with the moral majority and Jerry Falwell and there seemed to be a desire to listen to Christians in the national scene. That certainly doesn't seem to be the case anymore. But God is trying to remind us he's not limited to a certain era or a certain individual and God is going to build that into the story through this journey. Elijah goes on this journey to see seminary. Sure, it is a little trip down memory lane. It's a farewell tour. But the reason he goes down these, uh, to these towns, these different cities, is to remind the reader of the conquest of the promised land. So you're reading this book for the first time, and guess where you are? You are in exile. Okay? The nation of Israel, when they read 2 Kings, they were in exile, which means they have already fallen away from God. They've forsaken him, and they're now experiencing all the consequences of having their land taken away from them. Okay? And they're wondering, is there any hope? Who's going to give us a word? Where does life come from? Okay. And so God takes, him, takes Elijah, because it's the Lord who does this. The Lord was about to take him. The Lord sends him here. And the Lord sent me here. You hear that in verse 2. You, heard that you hear that in verse 4. For the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And then you see it in verse 6. For the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. Who's directing every single step? The Lord. The Lord's in control. And he's directing him down memory lane to kind of retrace the steps of Joshua. But he's retracing the steps of Joshua in reverse. 
I'm sorry, if you're our guest, I know that there's quite a few kind of Bible names here. So let me just kind of just pause. Joshua is the successor of Moses. So Moses brings them out of Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. They're stuck. And God says, I'm going to show that I'm with you by parting the Red Sea. And he does, and they walk through on dry ground. Well, Moses dies. How are we going to go on without Moses? Everyone feels that way. He's been so faithful for 40 years. He only struck the rock the wrong way one time. Now Joshua's going to take the mantle. He's been with Moses. He was actually on the Mount Sinai when the uh, Ten Commandments were given for 40 days, fasting and waiting for Moses to come down. And so Joshua's going to take the helm. He's into, and, and how does God show that Joshua's the next man? He comes to the Jordan River, and they, they can't cross it. It's flood season. And what does God do with the Jordan River? Twelve priests with the Ark of the Covenant have them take their toe into the water. And what happens? Water parts. And what is Israel going? This is like Moses. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Read Joshua 1. That's the story. Okay? So now, here we are. They're tracing the steps of Joshua. They're going back. And they are in reverse order. The first stop along the way is in verse 1. They stop at Gilgal. Where's Gilgal? It's the last place Joshua and the army stopped before crossing the Jordan River. So it's the last place they stopped. And so, ooh, okay, here we are. This is a really roundabout way if you were to get your map and you're going to look at it. This is not the way you have to get to the Jordan River, okay, or to Jericho. They go a roundabout way, but they intentionally stop at Gilgal. Then the next stop is Jericho. What happens there? Joshua, the walls come tumbling down, but more important than that, before that happens, who does Joshua meet that he's scared of? This, this soldier, this captain of an army with a flaming sword, right? And he, Whose side are you on? It's, it's my army. It's not Moses' army. It's not your army. I'm the same Lord, right? So he meets them and they go over. And then verse 8, we see here in our passage, they strike the water, the Jordan, with a cloak. And it just so happens to part and they walk across on dry ground. Hmm retracing the steps, but this time they're not going into the promised land. Elijah and Elisha are leaving it. Well, why are they leaving it? Well, it just so happens that Elijah goes up in a whirlwind right in the same location where Moses dies. Hmm. Just trying to retrace and build confidence for the people of God that I've had Abraham, I've been faithful to him, and I met with him at Bethel, and guess what? Abraham's dead. And then there was Isaac. He took the mantle, and he met with me with dreams at Bethel, and guess what? He's dead. And then Moses, he led you faithfully through the Red Sea to show that, that I am with you, and he's dead. And then Joshua took over and parted the Jordan River, and he's He's dead. And we get passed down from person to person, and there's Elijah, and he's gone, and eventually Elisha's dead. But guess who remains through it all? God. God will not leave himself without a witness. and His word will always be heard. And so Charles Wesley famously said, God buries his workmen, but continues his work. God goes on even when his workmen does not. And so God is not the God of just Elijah. He is also the God of Elisha. So here's our second point. A relay race is about the baton, not the runners. A relay race is about the baton, not the runners. The author wants you to pick this up 
as you compare what happens as soon as Elijah is taken up to heaven. Elijah's taken up to heaven. Elisha's sad. And he has a question. But the sons of the prophet are sad as well. And they also have a question. Let's look and see the different responses. Let's start in verse 14. So Elisha took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. He struck the water and he hears his question. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? That's his question. And when he had struck the water, the water was parted the one side to the other, and Elijah went over. That's question one. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said the spirit of Elijah rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. What do they care about? Can you help us find the body of Elijah? Right? That's what they're asking. We want to go find him. Maybe he's alive. Maybe he got taken somewhere else. He got transported. What does Elisha care about? Not where is the body of Elijah. He cares about where is the God of Elijah. See the big difference? Looking in the past, where is the body of Elijah? We need this. We need this person. Or do we really care more about where is the God of Elijah? If you're going to take the mantle from somebody in this church in a ministry, or maybe a parachurch ministry, or you're taking the mantle in your home and you're leading your family well, whatever it might be, the youth group, think about your own ministry. How do you transition well when the person who served before you did such a good job? It's, it's, it's hard, right? There, there's a lot of danger. There's a lot of places where you can misstep and stumble. I think they usually involve how we look at the past. One of the dangers when you take the mantle from somebody else that you look back over your shoulder at the past and you begin to kind of venerate it. And you begin to say, oh, we'll never be as good as those days. You ever feel that way? I'll never be as good as my dad. I'll never be as good as, you know, Pastor Jeff Owen. The way that he was able to witness, the way that he was able to make it clear and simple, just never going to be like him. I know I was underneath him for nine years, but I think it probably still took me five years to realize I'm, I'm called to be the master of this church. And Jeff, as much as I love him, is gone from here. It takes a little bit of time to get there and just to realize God called me. And I have to just do it with the gift that God has called me to. Right? But it, I think one step is just to say the past is the past. Elijah's gone. But the other thing you have to do is you can't disparage the past. That would really be bad. Right, So you take over for somebody, you start a new ministry, you get a new job, and you kind of want to send that message that, I, I deserve to be here. And in order to pull yourself up, you push people down. And you're like, yeah, now that I'm in charge, we're going to do things the right way. We're going to preach from the Bible. And it's like, really? I mean, like the other guy didn't ever preach from the Bible. We're going to preach from the gospel. We're going to be a gospel-centered church. Really? I mean, maybe... The other guy wasn't, but, you know, we just kind of want to, yeah, I'm here. You're welcome. I'm here to serve you. And to do that, we can oftentimes put somebody down. Elijah doesn't do that. What does he want from Elijah when he asks? He says, give me a double portion. What does that mean? I want to continue on in the same ministry that you had. I'm not going to venerate you and say, oh, we'll never be as good as you. But I'm also not going to step on you to make myself look better. I want a double portion. It should go on. What does that mean? A double portion does not mean that he's greedy. I just need more. 
Double portion is Bible language for inheritance. Okay, back then, if you're the oldest son, you were the heir. And you would get an inheritance. You would get a double portion, more than all the rest. That was just because you were going to be a successor of the family line. Now here, Elisha doesn't ask for land or for money. He asks for a vocation. Would you let me be your successor? That's what he's really asking here. Would you let me be your successor? And Elisha says, that's a hard thing for me to give you. I don't know. But look at this verse. He says, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. If you do not see me, it shall not be so. Why does he say that? Because a prophet is known as a seer. S-E-E-R. And so, I don't know if I can make you my successor, but I do know this, that if you see me and you see me go, because a prophet has to be able to see the future, that's what a prophetic office is, right? They can see what's coming, they hear a word from the Lord about the future. If you can see me go, then chances are, well, not chances are, then, then you'll be my successor. If not, then you're not a prophet because you don't see me. That, that's, that's the whole point there. But Elijah's going to be the successor. So he takes Elijah, Elijah's cloak, he strikes the water in front of 50 witnesses, and he walks through the Jordan on dry ground. So just as Moses confirmed Joshua, now Elijah has confirmed Elisha, and God is with Elisha now. He becomes the chariot and the horsemen of Israel. Flip over in your Bible to 2 Kings 13. 2 Kings 13. And see how Elisha, at the end of his life, is called the chariot and horsemen of Israel. 2 Kings 13, 14. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and went before him, crying, here it is, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He became the protector, the provider, the defender, the arsenal of God when Elijah went to heaven. So that's really important for us to, as we run this relay race to remember it's about the baton. If you don't pass the baton, you are running in vain. If you're a runner and you don't have the baton, you're running with nothing in your hand, you've already lost the race. So, New Testament parallel. What is the New Testament connection? For Christians, the baton is the gospel. So we work hard every week here, passing the gospel down from me to you, from you to others, every single week, because you want to have that in your hand as you are running this race. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.14, and Paul tells Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. It's been given. It's yours. You have the gospel. Guard it. Protect it. Don't waste it. But then he goes on to say in 2 Timothy 2, verses 2 through 6, these words. You can turn there if you like. 2 Timothy 2, 2 through 6. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Timothy, don't let us stop with you, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What is our job? Disciple faithful men and women. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have first share of the crops. 
So Timothy heard it from Paul, and now Timothy is to pass on to others, and it is going to be hard work. He actually uses three pictures for you. It is as grueling as the life of a soldier. In order to do this well, in order to entrust someone else with the gospel, you have to have a singular focus. Did you notice here that the soldier is someone who doesn't get entangled in the affairs of this world? He has to be about his mission. He can't be thinking about home or else he pops his head up and, you know, it's just not good, right? I mean, that's how it works. You have to have a singular focus. He's committed to that task. And then second, you have to be an athlete. Well, what is an athlete? An athlete is somebody who has to compete according to the rules, Right? You can't, there's no shortcuts around suffering. An athlete's all about pain. And the irony of working out is that when you feel weaker, right, lifting, that when you can't do anymore, what's actually happening? The weaker you feel, the stronger you're getting. But you have to compete according to the rules. And he says, finally here, it's like a farmer who ought to have the first share of his crops. Now, I never really met a farmer until I moved to New Hampshire. It's been a treat to get to know farmers and to learn new words and to try to uh, walk onto a farm and to actually identify things. That's a cow, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> yes, it has been a whole education in and of itself. I think one of the first things I did here was that somebody slaughtered a pig that owned a kind of a pig farm here in our church. And they wanted me to see that. I had just never you know, seeing how bacon got, got produced. I just want the bacon, right? And so I've known a lot of farmers, both in our church and around town. There's been a lot of farmers that I've met that are crass. I've met some rude farmers. I have also met some arrogant farmers. You wouldn't think that, but th they might give you the impression that they have kind of time on their hands. Uh, they might that they, they, they might not make it seem that they're uh, they read a lot of books. They're not educated. They, they might give you that impression. But farmers know how to fix tractors, their cars, care for animals, the soil, uh, how to get all this done. I mean, these guys are just brilliant men. So I've met a couple arrogant ones because I ask them, "How do you do this?" And they're like, "You don't know how to do that." I'm like, "No, I don't." <laughs> But you know what I've never met? I've never met a lazy farmer. You know what you call a lazy farmer? A suburbanite. We go to the grocery store, and we just buy it, and we go, thank you. And we go home, and we watch Netflix, and we eat it. I mean, that's just kind of how it works. But a farmer is someone who works hard and is all in and never tires. And you know what? Passing the gospel on to somebody else will test your mettle. Did you notice that in this passage, Elijah tries to get Elisha to stay put three different times? Has that baffled you? Like, hey, I'm going on to Bethel. You should stay behind. No, I'm going with you. Okay, we're going to go down to Jericho. You don't want to go into that city. That's, that's a tough city. Why don't you just stay behind? No, I'm going with you. I'm, I'm all in. Singular focus. I've counted the cost. There's no shortcuts. If it involves suffering, I'm there. I'm going to do the hard work of a, of a farmer. Okay, well, we're going to cross the Jordan, and we can't get through it. The water's high. I am going with you. Faith family, wouldn't it be great if we had a little bit more farmer in us? Kind of just committed, hardworking, patient, enduring. Here's one way that could apply to your life. Some of us might have been raised with saying, hey, do you want to go to church tomorrow? Eh, I don't really feel like it. What if it was just... Like my kids that come to me and say, hey, Dad, we're on vacation. Are we going to church? 
Sunday school starts in the fall. Hey, Dad, we going to Sunday school? Yes. So I tell my kids, right? Like, hey, there's a couple of things that you can ask me. The answer will always be yes. We're going to church? Hey, are we going to go to Sunday school? <laughs> are we going to youth group? Yeah, I mean, that's what we're doing. And it's not even an option, right? And so it's just that, that faithfulness of what that would do in our lives as we try to disciple others. If you're an elder at FCBC or you want to be one, basically, this is your job description. A man who might be able to communicate but does not want to impart what he knows to somebody else in discipleship is not fit for pastoral ministry. That's what we're looking for in our next candidate. But even if you're not a pastor, even if you're not an elder, if you're a parent, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're on the praise team, you're a youth leader, this passage before you should make you ask this question. Have you identified a few faithful, reliable men or women? Have you identified them? If so, are you praying for them? Are you discipling them? It is hard work. If you're here and you're not an elder, you're not investing your life in somebody else for the gospel that you've been entrusted with, I have to ask you this question, how are you measuring the impact of your life? If, if that's not how you're measuring the impact of your life, by what standard are you? How are you ranking yourself that what you're doing is worth it? We all want our lives to count. We all live for a verdict that our life was not a waste, but that it actually counted, right? We, we live for that verdict. And if you live for any other verdict than this one, right, then you're always going to be saying, well, I did a good job there, but will it, be, will it be good enough next week? Will it be good enough the next month? Will it be good enough here? See, the world wants to put you on this performance treadmill in which you have to earn your verdict. The gospel is completely different. The gospel actually says that the verdict is already in. You've been vindicated because of what Christ has done. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And now we serve and we work from that acceptance, not for that acceptance. And I just want to wrap this whole sermon up with that the gospel relay has rewards, and it's because you get vindicated, and it's from that vindication that you can go and serve. Did you notice that Elijah gets taken up to heaven in a whirlwind? He doesn't die. God chooses to take him directly to heaven. Anybody else want to sign up for that? I kind of want to die, I think. Let's do a survey. Who actually wants to just go straight up? Avoid death. I kind of want to taste it because I feel like Christ died and tasted it and that he can just resurrect me from whatever. I just want to go through what he, he's the first for I just want to go through it. I think to miss it, I'm like, ah, I don't know. I, I, I want to be, I want to see that glory of getting resurrected from, you know, dead in the ground, bones, nothing there anymore. I want to see that resurrection. Just a thought. Okay. So anyways. You're like, I can take care of that. <laughs> I know a farmer. He has a big field. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dana. Maybe the little tombstone for me out back somewhere would be good. All right, so why doesn't he die? Wrap it up in closing. He doesn't die because God is going to vindicate Elijah. Elijah's whole life has been one in which the majority of the world really hasn't believed that what he's doing is the right thing and hasn't followed him and parents, and disciple-makers, and ministers in the church, one of the things that makes you want to tap out and not keep going is that you do all this work, and it just seems that it has little result, i.e. parenting. All this effort, and you're like, have we made a difference at all? Our kids are still fill in the blank. And so we want to tap out. Well, at the end, 
Elijah is taken to heaven as a vindication that God is the true God and has been doing God's work and that God has set his seal upon him, that his ministry was genuine, even though it didn't turn out what he was hoping for, the whole nation turning from Baal, the whole nation turning to serve Yahweh. No, it ends, 2 Kings ends with them in Babylon, right? I mean, they are just in exile, but God puts his seal upon him to vindicate his ministry and to give him the reward of being with his heavenly father for eternity. And it just shows us that in this life, we don't always get it right. When we judge people right now, it's really hard to know what genuine ministry is from fake ministry. We're not always going to see it. Because sometimes people that look like they have no following, no one's going after them, no one's listening. There's not big conversions on a large scale. There's no stadium filling here in New Hampshire preaching the gospel and people walking out. It doesn't happen. And so you wonder, uh, What's God up to? Is God with us? Is God among us? Well, guess what, friends? There was another prophet who had the same spirit and power of Elijah, who also had a ministry, in which he seemed to turn more people away than actually keep. He kind of preached the pews empty whenever he preached. In fact, it got so bad that they actually crucified him. And so in Acts chapter 2, Verse 23, the Bible says, This Jesus, delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Next verse, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What does that show us? You know, Jesus Christ is someone who the world sees one way and God sees another way. The world thought, he's not the right king. He's not the right person. Let's get him out of here. He's a threat. Kill him. God saw him and vindicated his life and his ministry. How? By raising him from the dead. Right? The verdict is visible of both of these men's lives to underline the point of what their whole life and ministry has been about. Worship the true God. Life comes from worshiping the true God. Elijah shows that life comes from God by going around death. Jesus Christ shows that you can have life from God by dying and giving it to you. The verdict is in because Christ is resurrected from the dead. And because he has that verdict that you are his child, if you know him, if you repent of your sins and put your trust in him, then now you serve from that verdict. You go and you try to run that relay race with others. Passing the baton that's been entrusted to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, down to the next generation. May God make us faithful as God shows himself that he is completely confident and capable to keep his ministry going as he buries his workmen and continues to work. Let's stand and we'll say our closing hymn, closing song, excuse me. Thank you, Martha, for coming up to the team.